Stooping Starlight presents My Secret Center, Vernal Equinox and Lou Seven. Do what thou wilt, with the whole of the law. Welcome to a new episode of Stooping Starlight. Today we will be focusing on the magical work of our sisters as well as celebrate the Thelemic New Year at the Equinox of the Gods. Do keep an ear out for a very special announcement at the end of the episode. Turns out April 8th will be a very special date for us. First out is the magical retirement. summer of 2012 I was in a place in my life where I was in between semesters in graduate school where I happened to be in a place where I didn't know anyone who was still around in the area and I didn't have any work and I didn't have any classes that I could take towards my degree program so basically it was very convenient for me it seemed to kind of work out as if that was the thing I was supposed to be doing for that part of the summer in terms of my magical trajectory, I was in a place where I had been involved in the Golden Dawn for a while and um, was sort of hampered by the fact that the group I was working with at the time didn't necessarily have the equipment for me to be able to go on and advance to the next degree. They happened to be quite far away. And so I was in a position where it was either you know, self-initiate or stagnate. So that's what prompted me to do this in the very first place. I did mine 10 years ago in 2006, and it lasted from September 22nd to October 22nd, the title of which was The Big Ass Lunar Working. It's not based on anything by Crowley, and it's not based on the Abermalane working or any other historical or traditional ceremonial magic. It's a magical retirement of my own design. So what I will be talking about is a personalized account of what a magician takes to go through in uh designing and writing and doing a month-long ritual, how a magical retreat fits into one's magical work and in one's personal life, a look at the challenges of working without a prescribed structure and developing and implementing one one's own ideas and adapting it into a spiritual environment. So why did I do it? First of all, the magical retirement is part of our tradition and ceremony. And I really wanted to emphasize the importance of my own spiritual development. I found as an oasis master, I was in danger of neglecting my personal work for the order's sake. And it's very easy for people who do a lot of volunteer work for the order to kind of make most of their ritual group ritual. So I wanted to do something for myself. I took this magical retirement in preparation for a Thelemic initiatory event. But throughout my life, I have been heavily influenced by Buddhism. I have even spent a little time in an ashram devoted to Shiva. I have never given myself the opportunity to do a proper silent retreat. Classically, this is a time when the devotee chooses not to speak. But in my case, I worked hard with my partner not only to be silent, but to hear no human voices for a week. This, it turns out, was a truly transforming experience for me. 
Um, the Abermalin operation is something I had wanted to perform ever since I read the Mathers translation of the book. But to me, it definitely seemed like an advanced ritual, one I'd need to prepare for extensively. Um, so I thought on it for years, reread the book many times, including eventually the better den version, and I made my plans. But all my plans were for the distant future. I still didn't think that I was anywhere near ready for such an undertaking. I made a timeline for when I would begin in about five years. And in the meantime, I'd continue to study and practice. I wanted to kind of tell my HGA that I was that I was coming, let him know that I was thinking of him, just reach out a little. And so I started praying occasionally at night before bed. Nothing fancy, just prayers directed towards the angel, let him know I'm thinking of him. They weren't structured prayers at all, and I didn't do them every night. And I eventually went through a long period of time where I didn't do them at all. And it was about this time that I was just cleaning my apartment one day or just doing something mundane and mindless, maybe washing the dishes, um, that I got the very strong message out of nowhere stating that I had started the ritual and that I had better finish. My aims were essentially to get in better touch with um, Tiferet and um, to get into a better um, type of relationship with my holy guardian angel. Those were my intentions going in. Um, and that worked quite well for the three-week period because um, the mystic number of Tiferet is 21. So there was some Kabbalistic symbolism for me in structuring it according to um, sort of a three-week plan where I would have a beginning, a middle, and an end of one week each. So I was sort of riffing off of that um, three-phase model that you'll see in Abramelin. I had two sources of inspiration for my working. The first one was Frater EAOA, a brother in Buffalo, who did a lecture I saw about how in 1985 he did Lieber New out in Gaza's Bluff, which is near Alice Springs in Australia. He went out to a crater in the desert and he did Lieber New and had it memorized. And he talked about all his magical supplies and how the Milky Way was rising overhead. And I was very, very impressed and like, yes. My second source of inspiration is how it says in the Book of the Law, for he is ever a sun and she a moon. So I wanted to do a month-long lunar ritual, a lunar month. And since I feel like the lunar principle is underrepresented in Thelema, I kind of wanted to approach it sort of as a lunar version of Libra Resh. Additionally, I wanted to start working more extensively on sex magic. I was going to do a ritual that lasted a lunar month. I wanted it to begin with a solar eclipse which would be the union of the sun and the moon. Uh, the sex magic component was a component of the magical retirement throughout. And um, I'm a hetero female, so my partner is male. So he was participating with me in the sex magic. Uh, my concept also in involved doing rituals at moonrise and moonset daily, sort of, again, like this lunar version of Libra Resh, but not four times a day, twice a day. And I was going to work with a different lunar concept each week. 
there wasn't going to be any clear focus or specific goal, which would be actually very lunar, something kind of nebulous and without a real form so that the ritual would give form to it. And also I would be working on a dream diary throughout and keeping one of those. And also um, isolation wasn't part of my ritual. So it's not like I needed to lock myself away somewhere for a month and not talk to anybody. Uh, Certainly, obviously, I have my partner I was working with, but uh, I could still hang out with friends and go to the store and do whatever. And and as long as I was available for my rituals at Moonrise and Moonset every day. I decided to have a retirement that lasted eight days. The first two only during the evenings because I had to work. I wanted to have at least six days of absolute silence. I set up our guest bedroom for my retirement and it was near the bathroom which limited my travel to two tiny rooms. Most of my preparations involved strategies for being warm enough. The room was poorly insulated and was never entirely comfortable even though my sequestration took place in October. My partner agreed to bring food and necessities We talked in advance about how we would communicate through notes briefly and not frequently and addressed the fact that not speaking to one another would be hard. By way of explanation, my one son is in college and doesn't live with us. I am imagining that having kids around would make many parts of this more challenging than in my situation. Two months in advance, I cut my alcohol consumption down considerably until during my sequestration I wasn't drinking at all. I cut my caffeine intake down to 10% of my normal levels. I really wanted to meet myself in that tiny room without chemical adulterants or any filters. Of course, I thought that was absurd. I thought, of course, I haven't started. But the feeling I came to think of as inspiration and instruction said back to me very clearly, yes, yes, you have started, now finish. Uh, The instructions also said that I'd finish... October 31st. And this was all really frightening, very frightening for me because I'd never experienced anything like that sort of inspiration. And and also the instructions I was receiving weren't, of course, exactly in line with the Abermalin operation. As it's laid out in the book, October 31st was about a year away from that time. Uh, it was maybe November or December when um, that had happened. So if I had started already, I wasn't sure when I started, and I wasn't sure how to structure the ritual outside of the 18-month or 6-month versions, but the inspiration was very authoritative, and I just had to go with it. I didn't have a particularly detailed plan for those three weeks. I basically figured that it would sort of unfold as I started um, going through the process and started moving. What I did in order to kind of set the container was a few different things. One was I um, essentially put an away message on my Facebook. I um, let any of my close friends in the area know that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be responsive to phone calls or text messages for about the next month or so. Um, and just sort of generally let the people who are closest to me in my life know that um, I wouldn't really be as responsive as usual during that time. Um, I think that probably in retrospect, it would have been better to be a little bit more casual with that. I left the house once to go grocery shopping um, after about the first week. So I was there for about a week, got some groceries, 
And then the last two weeks I was able to make do with what I had. I did leave the house a few times um, to go to a nearby park and walk just because with that duration of time, I felt like if I didn't get some amount of exercise that, um, you know, that would be a real problem. Aside from the more personal challenges that I ran into with the actual work and the meat of what I was doing um, internally, the most challenging part um, logistically was a time where I was engaged in doing something in the temple room and uh, the maintenance fellow for the apartment where I was renting um, knocked on the door and came in to change an air filter while I was in the middle of um, doing something fairly intense. Uh, so that was a little bit difficult to have a space that I had so carefully constructed, um, just like completely get stomped over. Um, I think that individual happened to be unusually curious about me and, um, what I was doing in general. That was one of those things where, you know, you would hope that, you know, it would be taken care of for you or that, you know, somehow magically the guardians of the temple would turn people away from doing something like that. Um, but it happened. I got barged in on right while I was in the middle of doing something that was pretty delicate. Um, so those sorts of things can happen no matter how careful you are. And I had to realize that that, um, just sort of is a possibility. So I was looking for spiritual inspiration for the work. Uh, one of the questions I was asking myself is whether as an Oasis master, I should, uh, consider the duties and the roles of becoming a lodge master, and begin working with the sex magic energy for the final week. The second week would deal with home, family, womanhood, my personal sexuality, and fertility. So I wanted to concentrate on relationships, building my own confidence. Um, I was having questions whether I wanted to have children at that point in my life, and also um, my own personal passion and prayer, inflaming myself with prayer. And uh, really taking the inspiration a step further and, and putting it into the foundation of my life. The third week would deal with psychic awareness. So I was going to be doing more divination, uh, more dream work, and concentration exercises to develop my psychic ability. And the final week, as mentioned, dealt with sex magic. And so um, I would be doing invocations of deity and having sex with deity as part of that. 14 October, Night of Wands. Last night, we set up the ancestor altar and celebrated Eucharist before it. We listened to Arvo Parrot and opened all the windows. Black, cold air streamed in to keep us company. It was a very juicy evening. Today and tomorrow I am working, but in sequestration during the evening hours. Wednesday after work, no more contact with people, except one checking of email during evening hours until next Wednesday. Today was more or less a mundane day of details, getting ready for being out of action for a week. It was unusually well-grounded, with studies of stained glass windows in France from the 13th century, and an article about using spectroscopy on a brain from a skull found in a bog in Britain that somehow escaped decomposition. I also spent some hours assigning elemental features for one of the engineers. After dinner, I moved into my son's bedroom, the very small upstairs room, and began my first pranayama session. After that, I sat in unorganized meditation until I got sleepy, speaking not at all. I was mostly during this time observing how hooked the mind is on what I have to do. I was also happily amused at the fact that the cats know turning the knob on the door is what makes it open. They were, of course, not happy at their failure to manifest the results, 
but it was really cute to be on the other side. So what I ended up doing was sticking with the prayers I had already started, um, making then my well, quote-unquote formal start, as it's outlined in the book, uh, for the six-month version. I thought, well, since I've been told I'm finishing at the end of October, I'll make my second start, so to speak, on May 1st. So part of the reason why I wanted to wait, wait a while before I started the ritual in the first place, when I had my original timeline, you know, I was thinking maybe I'd be about 40 or so. And um, I wanted things in my life to be perfect. I wanted the perfect oratory, exactly how it was laid out in the book. But we all know how it usually works out when we seek perfection. Not at all. <laughs> but I started receiving inspiration about all the details, exactly how to rearrange my tiny space so it would all be suitable. About one month after I had, well, you know, made my second start in June, I even had to move. And I even had the feeling, even though I'd been at that place for several years, I had the feeling that my lease was not going to be renewed. And a, a couple of people warned me that this would hinder the ritual, but it didn't. It was actually a big improvement. And I was able to sleep downstairs in the living room and turn most of the upstairs into temple space. It has five windows and is very open and airy. And it was absolutely perfect and beautiful during the invocation days. I did temple sessions four times a day at the four quarters of the sun. Um, when I wasn't doing that, I spent a lot of time uh, reading. I must have read uh, at least half a dozen different books, cover to cover. Did a lot of cooking um, and just generally did a lot of thinking and a lot of um, sort of personal meditation. I did some art. I wish in retrospect that I had done more art um, because it would have given me, I think, uh, a different type of record than just a generally written record. So there's an annular eclipse, and this eclipse is part of the Saros 144 eclipse. And uh, Saros 144 is a series of 71 lunar eclipses. The first one occurred in 1736 on April 11th. And the last eclipse in this cycle goes to 2980, May 5th. I did check in, like, through some history books to see if there was anything significant that happened in the world on April 11th, 1736. I haven't really found anything, um, but I like to think I'm the one starting something. So I like the idea of being in part of this, like, greater cycle, something bigger than myself, because not only is there the lunar cycle, but there's this series of eclipses that, like, happen every 18 years and 11 days, and it just goes chuck, 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 chuck all the way down, and it's pretty cool. Maybe by this last eclipse, people finally have their flying cars. I decided to give myself permission to do a set of things that I knew basically were trance-inducing for me. These included yoga, meditation, pranayama, embroidery, and the daily creation of a new perfume. The room was actually a little small for yoga, and therefore this turned into a daily stretching and yin type of adaptation of inverted postures. I did formal sitting for hours every day. I didn't want to actually be likely to complete an embroidery project, 
because then I'd be able to distract myself with planning another one. Therefore, I chose to do a white-on-white -white version of the Sigillum de Amoth. I accomplished my goal in that choice. I'm still not done with it, and I didn't plan to make the perfumes. But the box of essential oils was on the bookcase in my retirement room. It just seemed appropriate. It was very pleasing to try to make a perfume that encompassed how I was feeling on any given day. I'm not much of a, a solitary person, or at least I wasn't before all this. I was very social and enjoyed being around people. My calendar was very, very full. Uh, that was definitely quite a challenge. But the more time I spent alone, the more I craved it. Um, I still had my 9 to 5 job, so I was still very much interacting with people every day. I began to really lose my patience um, with interacting with people. At first, I, I missed people terribly, but pretty soon all I wanted to do was go home and be with my books. And it's kind of amazing how quickly solitude became a habit. Right now, it's about five months after the end of the ritual, and I'm still just recently beginning to go out and see people more. I'm a much more solitary person since the initiation. A lot of that does have to do with knowing my will now and knowing the work I'm supposed to be doing. I also have a much better understanding of how magic works and am immersed in lots of experiments. But uh, back to my job, I do hear a few people worry about how they're going to pray if they've got a job. Um, I know, I mean, I know odds are you're, you're not going to be able to get to your oratory every time you need to in the last phase. Especially, you'll be praying three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And if you're like me with that average nine to five, you're probably not going to be able to make it home at noon every day during lunch. But it really was as easy as finding a quiet place at lunchtime. I usually was able to find an unoccupied conference room and I prayed there. Of course, my oratory was preferable at any time, but there's no reason to put off this ritual if that's your concern. Um, of course, from, for the final week, you're going to want to be able to take off work. That's when you'll want to use your vacation days. Um, I even took my cat during that week to my mother's to stay with her, so I'd be completely alone and, and not bothered by anyone or anything. I think that it's one of those things that sort of gets blown up and dramatized, like, oh, well, you know, if you do the knowledge and conversation working, you have to go away for this long period of time, and it's not even necessarily really like that. You can go and just do a long weekend somewhere, um... And get a real, you know, significant benefit from that without having to do something that's really big or dramatic or flashy or long. It just depends on what's going to fit in with your life. It's easy to listen to a podcast like this. It's easy to hear some of the stories or read some of the accounts of people who've done long-term retirements and think, well, that's great. They're getting these amazing results, but what about me? So I don't think that anyone needs to be discouraged or think that um, this particular type of work is out of reach. You can scale it to the amount of time you have and to the limitations that you have.
in a sense, that's what I did. I didn't have the amount of time that I needed for the full Abu Melon, but I had three weeks and I was able to get some pretty important things done for me in my magical career uh, within those three weeks. So here are some of the preparations I did. I did start preparing for this three years in advance. You know, you find when you start putting things together for a large magical operation, you're already starting to do your magic at that point. Um, a lot of the equipment and decor was what I collected early on. Uh, for instance, I decided that the colors I was going to work with were lunar colors like traditional silver and blue, uh, white for the full moon, and also violet since that would be uh, sod. Again, I mentioned that I had access to a purple room, and if you go to the Stooping Starlight website, I believe they will post photos there of some of the, uh, just my magical accoutrements to kind of see how I did it. Um, I did have very, uh, several kinds of robes. I had a silver robe, a blue robe with a, a silver girdle, and the aforementioned sex magic outfits. So I had uh, more than one robe for this. I also needed a round altar. Uh, glass candle holders and candles in various colors. And I also put some discs around the ceiling of the room in the lunar phases, which I painted. And what I used were these Wilson cake, uh, cake bases. You can get like a pack of a dozen of them at Michael's. And uh, they're just cardboard round discs. So I just painted phases of the moon on them and put them up and it looked just great. Another thing I did is um, since the moon ro rules the three lower senses of touch, smell, and taste, that was going to be a component of my ritual. So one thing I did is I made full moon water. And what that is is you take a silver vessel, you put it out overnight under the light of the full moon and no sunlight touches it. And overnight, it absorbs the energies and the light of the full moon. And you have to get out in the morning and, and pack it up before the sun touches it and uh, keep it in an opaque container. And I would use that for uh, lunar teas or for ritual baths, um, anointing myself. So I found a lot of uses for that water. 15 October, nine of swords, cruelty, of oh, 400 hours. In the end, I slept with the door open because the airflow in this room is terrible. I burned some incense before bed and needed to relieve the smell, which turned sour after about an hour. The cats were very pleased. I awakened feeling strong and well, if a little cold, to this tiny room with a shrine in it. I meditated for about an hour, then stretched and went to work. I spent lots of time in lab, hoping to avoid people for the most part. That didn't work so well, but I did not indulge at all in the distraction of news, social media, or personal email. I got home and immediately came upstairs, and now I'm sitting here, head abuzz with all the people and all the things I was doing. A very different place than this morning. I think it will be very good for me to disconnect. A real silent retreat. Something I've never given to myself. I will sit a while formally tonight, and maybe then do some sewing. From the beginning, I felt I was um, pretty unprepared for all this. I trusted the inspiration and it led me to every answer that I sought that I needed, whether it was through the guidance of a friend who had already gone through the ritual or leading me to a book that had the answer I was looking for or just getting the tools I needed. One of the absolutely coolest things that happened while I was collecting materials was the acquisition of my wand. I searched for an almond wand or almond wood so I could make my own but I couldn't find any. Places I looked online all were out of stock. 
And a friend who uh, completed the ritual suggested that I get a wand made out of whatever tree resonated with me, perhaps one that symbolized wisdom to me. So I thought on it for a while and was eventually inspired to make a wand from the silver, um, silver maple in my mother's backyard. It's a tree in the home where I lived when I first started practicing magic. I gazed at it from my window during most rituals and meditating, you know, when I, I performed when I was growing up. So it, um, it was pretty important to me. So I went to select a branch from that tree. And when I did, my mother's cat followed, <laughs> my cat meowing at me. My mother's cat followed along with me. Um, I realized I actually couldn't reach any branches to cut myself. But there were also plenty of freshly fallen ones that looked pretty perfect. Well, I turned to my cat on a whim, and or my mom's cat, and asked him which branch I should choose. And he plopped right down, stretched out his paw, and touched one that looked just right. And I picked it up and saw that it had a very nice um, divot at one end that would hold a small stone or crystal perfectly. And I'm not much of a stone or crystal expert, but I resolved to find one that would help me make my stick a wand. But finding a topper to that did move to the back of my mind. I kept putting it off, and before I knew it, it was about a week before the ritual proper, and I still didn't have a complete wand. Uh, doing the laundry one day solved that problem for me. I was uh, doing the laundry and unfolding a shirt from the dryer and something popped out of the fabric and fell to the ground with a big thunk. And it was a small piece of cut quartz crystal. I'd never before seen it in my life. Like I said, I'm, I said I'm not a crystal or stone person. I certainly don't have them lying around. But as soon as I saw this crystal, I knew it would fit perfectly on my wand. And it did. I just went over and put it right in and it stayed. That's all I had to do. For me, there was also a pretty significant latency period. Um, so there were things that happened um, mostly during the third week, but also late in the second week that I didn't understand at all at the time. I didn't really have much of a clue what was happening um, or what was going on. And it was only probably a good solid year and a half later that I started to realize that one thing that happened during this retirement was that I had made a contact. And I had read a little bit about making contacts and what that was and how that worked, but I had never received any actual instruction in how to do it or what it looked like. And in my mind, it was one of those things that people way more experienced than me did <laughs> and not something that was really um, within my purview at all. But when I looked at, well, this is what I wrote down. And when I looked at, well, this is what I'm experiencing and looked at some other books that sort of address the topic in more of a tangential sort of way, it became pretty clear to me that that was the best explanation for the experiences that I had had. Um, that was one of those things where it happened and then um, it was almost like a seed being buried underground. Like something happened and then it disappeared and then a bunch of time passed and then something emerged. So the first week was inspiration and um, again meditation and openness 
And that was when I first had my very first challenges occur. Um, and that was the journal entries, because you're doing two journal entries a day, plus I was doing a dream journal. And I tend to recall things in very great detail. So um, it was just a real pain in the neck to keep up with the writing early on. Week two, once again, dealt with family, home, womanhood, personality, fertility. And that's had a lot of meditative, introspective kind of work. I did a lot of, um, it's very thoughtful, as I recall. Um, a big challenge at this point, since we are doing sex magic every day in this ritual, um, as I was challenged at this point with the sex magic, mainly the thing being um, sex magic versus recreational sex. Um, when you're doing sex magic every day, yes, that is very, very draining and very, very difficult to do. If you read books about it, they say that, and you, you may not believe it, but yes, it is actually a big challenge. So at that point, I was just sort of like, oh, can't we just fuck? I'm tired of all this sex magic stuff, but we per persisted. The third week, again, was psychic awareness. So I did a lot of exercises where um, you're working with the tarot and you're trying to guess the card. I was working extensively with my lunar T. Again, a lot of meditation, introspection, just kind of going really deep into the psyche and trying to absorb what impression that way. Here is a journal entry from my birthday, which happened during the third week. And I will read it to you. Sun and Libra, moon and Aries. Weather, sunny and cool. Moonrise is at 6.33 p.m. Moonset is at 8.46 a.m. on the next day. Sunrise is at 6.53 a.m. Sunset at 6.24 p.m. Dreams. I don't recall any specific dreams, but I know I had a lot of them that involved the Firefly series since I had just finished watching the whole thing last night, including the movie. I woke up around 11.30 a.m. today. Today is my birthday and my party was a bust. Nobody came since everyone bailed out last minute. I suck. I kind of disappointed... My partner, he made me a puffy pancake for breakfast in bed this and is getting me a hot rocks massage tomorrow. Earlier, we went apple picking at a local orchard and took a hayride. I had a good conversation with him about problems in the ritual. Strongly feeling a lack of focus, but I have no good ideas about what to focus on. Libra Astarte is the final ritual for them and came up as an idea for which we can use to culminate the work. Once again, extremely tired right before the moonrise ritual. I could barely keep my eyes open. And remember, uh, moonrise is at 6.30 p.m. The ritual was star ruby, star sapphire, my lunar invocation. I was doing Shadael high and lunar hexagrams, uh, middle pillar. Then I did a, a meditation with the tarot picking exercise. Um, I got 20 in harmony. So if the tarot exercise, I mean, you got the right suit. And I got one card that was actually correct, which, uh, which my partner says is greater than chance. So pretty cool. Um, I tried to read the energy in the cards by shape first, then by weight. Is it light? Is it heavy? I'm not sure what worked better. So even though I was working with psychic awareness for that third week of the ritual, I don't think my psychic ability really improved that much ultimately. Um, yeah, but it was good to work on it. The fourth week dealt with sex magic and god forms. So the structure we used is I would read an invocation for each deity. Once the deity was invoked, we would have sex with that deity. And um, I did the invocation for three of the deities, and my partner did the invocation for the final one. So the first deity we were working with was Hecate. Hecate's energy was darker and wise, and I didn't really wear it in a very sexy way, but I was doing a lot of work throughout the ritual with Hecate in general. Um, the place I was doing the working was about two blocks from a cemetery, like a really cool old cemetery in Connecticut with, you know, the 
gravestones that are falling over and covered with lichens and the names are worn off. So it's totally awesome. And I collected graveyard dirt from there so I could use it in my Hecate portion of the ritual. The second deity I worked with was Diana, who seemed to be more approachable and virginal, but also very dangerous in a way. I kind of wore that energy as a femme fatale and, uh, like, oh, you can have sex with me, but you know you shouldn't. I might kill you kind of thing. So it's very interesting to wear. Uh, but not as interesting as Toth, because Toth is an animal-human hybrid deity. And uh, may or may, maybe male, maybe female, maybe it doesn't matter. But kind of having sort of this spiritual bestiality kind of sex, because uh, in Egyptian mythology, Toth can be lunar. So uh, working with that energy was... Uh, very, very abstract. And in fact, I was moved to squawk, which is turned out just as silly as it sounds. But uh, that's one of the things you're kind of working with the awkwardness of some of these god forms, which is why you need to work with them multiple times. And the final one we worked with was Seen, who is a Sumerian deity and also lunar, but is male. And um, in this case, we switched roles. So my partner was invoking Seen and I was, for that ritual, I was Seen's consort for the sex magic. And I think it's worth pointing out here that even though I was doing a magical retirement, my partner was not. So he was still working a nine to five job and we were doing sex magic kind of on his schedule. So it doesn't, it wasn't always happening during the context of the ritual moonrise and moonset. We kind of peppered it in where it would fit. I had no difficulties other than making the space to do this thing. The silence was a real relief to me, and my partner basically handled all the practical aspects of the house for the time I was in seclusion. There was no part that was challenging. It felt like something I've been needing to do my whole life. It was easy to be quiet. I am never given that opportunity in normal life, and I felt it very comfortable and not at all difficult. The next time I am given this opportunity, I will choose to focus on the silent part of it and choose to do it longer. I hadn't been counting on that part to be such a source of exposure to my monkey mind noise. For that reason, if I could do it again, I would focus on the opportunity to hear no human voices for an even longer period of time. 16 October, Prince of Cups. Last night I embroidered for an hour and a half. The seven-sided star in the SDA is now two-thirds done. After that, I fell easily to sleep. I awoke feeling strong and aware I think I am healthier now than at any time since I've left New Hampshire. At that time, I was practicing martial arts five days a week. These last two months have seen me drop my alcohol intake and begin exercising about four days a week, even during the most of my travel, meaning that one of my cardio workouts was at the top of the Great Wall in China. The proof of this pudding is the fact that I've had no PMS this month. It has also become clear that one of the reasons I drink is to numb what could be called my psychic tendencies. Drinking 5% of my previous intake has left me very sensitive and a, perhaps a bit raw. Setting up the ancestor altar was especially strong, likely for this reason. I was hearing people at work yesterday, too. I don't like that so much, even if it's only because I'm good at reading body language. And I'm not at all sure that was the only thing going on. 17 October, Two Cups, Love, The Fool, The Queen of Cups. Very deep meditation for an hour and a half this morning. Later, not so successful at formal sitting. I did later a little painting, a lot of embroidery. I did my once daily check-in on my work email with only one appointment to accept. And of course, a lot of shit to ignore. I made a different perfume today. 
two parts each, galangal, hyssop, and patchouli, one part myrrh. So after the invocation, um, I've definitely become a different person, but it's more of becoming more me. I'm more aware of the habits I'm made up of that sort of hide my real self. I'm also very much still adjusting. Like I said, it's only been about five months. I'm still navigating the newness of it all and almost alienness of being united with the angel. Things look different to me now. People look different to me. Also, I get frustrated and angry a lot easier than I did before the ritual. And that is actually finally and, and blessedly starting to even out. So I'm assuming that's just still part of the adjustment process. I'm having bouts of extreme arrogance at times too, which is a big change for me. I was normally a pretty shy and submissive person, but now with the presence of the angel, I feel much more authoritative. And things definitely don't make me nervous or scared like they used to, which is all well and good until you start tipping over into arrogance and extreme pride. I've heard that the, the virtue of Tifereth is that the Tifereth initiation is devotion to the great work. But the vice is pride and arrogance. And I'm definitely seeing the truth in that. So in this phase of immediately after the invocation, I am struggling not to be mean, arrogant, obnoxious person. And I am slowly evening out through prayer and keeping up with martial arts. That's not something I excel at very easily, so it's good to get my butt kicked a little when I start telling myself how much awesomer than other people I am. And with that and the help of my angel, I'll keep in mind that I'm a man among men, so to speak. And keep in mind that I have a whole lot farther to go, of course. And also keeping in mind that I'm supposed to be serving humanity. Overall, I think the best metaphor for that working was um, going really far out away from the light pollution, away from um, the city lights to where uh, I could have a much more quiet inner life, an extremely quiet inner life, and um, from that place was able to... um, observe some things that I wouldn't have been able to observe or learn about um, in any other particular way. I don't think I have any major regrets from this particular retirement. Um, It wasn't the first one I had done. It was probably the most significant one for me um, in terms of my own development. Uh, I had had the opportunity to learn from having done a shorter one previous to this. So that gave me some idea of what worked, what didn't work, um, what to watch out for, and how to prepare. Um, Probably the biggest difficulty overall was transitioning out. So um, it was really overwhelming for me at first to be around large groups of people. Um, I had gotten to some fairly intense, I would say, Um, spiritual states over the course of that period of time and so um, transitioning back was something that was a bit challenging 
um, I was very clear and I've had this sense for previous types of work that I've done like this where I really didn't want to transition back. I felt like um, the sense of peace and tranquility and all that other wonderful stuff that I had managed to get to was not something that I really wanted to let go of. Um, but I knew that I had to. I knew that it was something that had a beginning, middle, and end and that I had to work through the end of it and you know, be able to integrate what I had done back into my daily life. Yeah, I would say it was probably a good three days before I was really um, back to normal, so to speak. Uh, I didn't have any major differences immediately after this particular working. It was one of those things where I had some pretty profound experiences and then nobody really noticed anything different. And then it sort of sat underground for a good year and a half. Um, and then I started to have some things later on after what I had done here came to fruit. And even then, it was a situation where I didn't initially connect that experience I was having back to this work I had done in 2011 until I went and looked at my notes. Most of what I actually did at that point was very Kabbalistic in nature, um, was sort of along the lines of the type of work I had been doing in a Golden Dawn Lodge. Um, and I wasn't identifying as a Thelemite at that point, so the, the tone of the work that I was doing was a bit different, but um, there were some similarities as well, and um, I think it worked along the lines of what's um, traditional in the Western mystery tradition. And of course, there was plenty of energy work, plenty of astral work, um, lots of visions. It did take a long time to get back to daily life, though. I was in a Walmart or in a Target or in one of these big box stores and looking around at all the people and having this experience of just being completely overwhelmed by all the people and all the emotions and all the thoughts, and um, it was so much. I had to really transition back slowly and pace myself, so um, that was one thing that I'm never really quite prepared for. I'm never really quite prepared to come back, because um, having gone to some extremely blissful places, and then leaving that and then integrating that back into normal day-to-day -day life can be a bit of a challenge, especially when um, you don't necessarily have as many control rods as you might think. Um, I don't know if this is pseudoscience, but maybe it's something along the lines of, you know, the endorphins build up in your body or something happens biochemically and there's just some inertia there in your system where it takes a while to shift back to the balance that you had before having done all this work. Um, that's probably not an accurate way in terms of the hard science of describing it, but the, the transition back and the um, reintegration of this kind of work with daily life, it always takes me longer than I think it's going to take, and I always underestimate um, how far out I've gone usually. The biggest challenge was the journaling, as I said earlier. Um, it's two entries a day for a month, 
And I'd say it sucked after like a week because I recall things in such detail, particularly the dreams. Uh, it's just so much writing. It was just very, very difficult to keep up. And it took months to catch up on journal entry. Another big challenge was keeping the schedule, which is one of the things that I liked about doing this sort of rituals to kind of work with a schedule that was wacky like this. Um, for instance, New Moon on the 22nd had a 6.22 a.m. sunrise. And I gave myself for the ritual an hour leeway around moonrise where, um, so I didn't need to start the ritual right at that time. So long as it was within an hour, I was good. And I felt like I fulfilled the moonrise role. At one point, my schedule flipped like after full moon. So I wasn't getting up for the day at 4 p.m. So, uh, you know, I kind of was getting up later and later and later. And then at some point it flipped. The sex magic was a big challenge. Um, again, as I said earlier, it is not easy to have sex magic every day with your partner. Sometimes you just want to have recreational sex. And also there's a certain amount of awkwardness working with God forms in general if you haven't done it. And then um, on top of working with God forms and trying to invoke a God, you know, then having sex with them. You know, that's something that takes a lot of practice. So um, since I hadn't really done it before, like this ritual was that practice for myself. But I, I just found it very um, kind of part acting, part invoking, and just... Uh, Wearing different energies was like a real change of pace. So you kind of had to adapt quickly. Things I could have done better. I think I was kind of cheating by giving the one hour leeway. I probably should have started it right at moonrise. But I'd be like, oh, the moon's not in the sky until I can see it. It's still on the horizon. So it's still okay to go an hour. I think maybe it would have benefited if I had a more concrete goal than, rather than just working with a mix of lunar concepts. Um... You know, you can ask me, what was the point of it? Why are you working these four things? Um, but I'd say that's kind of the nature of the moon, so that's not wrong. But I, I think maybe my nature is I tend to be more goal-oriented anyway. And I think another one of the things I could have done better is been more practice at invocation of God forms. Um, there are points where I, f I felt afterwards it left me very empty and feeling like I accomplished very little. Um, I didn't get a dramatic spiritual revelation like I wanted or a big aha moment. Um, I don't necessarily think I'm more psychic as a result of doing this ritual. It, I don't know. It could be my moon in Capricorn. I'm just too practical for that. But um, So I'd love to tell you I got a big aha moment out of doing this ritual. But I would like to point out for anyone doing a magical ritual, it isn't a guarantee of spiritual fulfillment, which is why these rituals must last so long. You don't do a magical retirement in three days. You need to kind of work at it. And keep it going and, you know, really work your, your way through the Isis, Apophis, and Osiris phases. They don't call it the great work for nothing. But with that said, I did have many successes. Nine months after this ritual, I got interviewed for a job that was pivotal to my career development. So that was a big change for me. And I also decided uh, as a result of this to take on the Lodge Mastership. And I'd say overall, the working did yield much fertility, even though it didn't take the form of babies. So looking ahead in conclusion... In 2024, I'll be 54, and I would love to see how my spiritual life has changed. And I am planning to repeat this lunar ritual in maybe a different form in that year. Um, I would think it would be cool if, like, future magicians, like, after I'm dead, wanted to keep doing, like, a, a lunar ritual and tap into this series so we're doing something that's just going to withstand, like, you know, an age. And, I, you know, that would be cool, but I guess that's kind of ego a little bit, too. But I still think it's cool. So if you are inspired to do a magical retirement, I encourage you to do it. Um, 
And if you have done a magical retirement, I encourage you to speak about your experiences. We don't have a lot of uh, people talking about this kind of work, even among males in the order, where you can go to a lecture on what I did on my magical retirement or my big-ass lunar working. So it's very important to share these experiences so new generations of magicians kind of know how to go about putting something like this together. When I immersed myself into the ordinary life after retreat, I noticed exactly how hard it was to quiet other people's voices in my head. My own voice is in there too, along with what I should have said and what I will say next time. Along those lines, planning is another major source of monkey mind. Being rid of speech and the need for planning a week was an amazing gift. I felt calm and quiet and content in a way that I've never felt before, but also thrilled to have the realization that silent retreats are a pretty easy way to reach that state. Of course, this means that there are also other ways to deal with the voices in your head that don't require you to be out of commission for a week. I seek to resolve my rational mind with an un or super rational the voices of the rational mind make it difficult or impossible to hunt God. I want my rational mind to work, of course, when I'm doing math, but during ritual, it needs to do something other than ask, is this real, or did you make it all up? I think I found the most interesting part of my retirement was that after I had had enough time for the other voices to fade, I found my own voice emerged. My own voice is the one that speaks in impression and not in words. It is a whisper and it never yells. It's even and metered. I think I can understand why it was so hard to feel with the rattle of other people's input around it. It has been a year and a half since my retirement and I'm still working with a heightened sense of attention to the sources of monkey mind. I continue to work toward creating a deeper relationship with my own inner voice. Um, if I could change anything about what I did it would really only be my attitude. I was so afraid. And looking back, it seems so silly how afraid I was. But since everything happened so suddenly the way it did, I spent a lot of time being unhappy that I was sort of being dragged into this prematurely, or what I considered was prematurely. I spent a lot of time thinking that I'd fail, that I wasn't ready. But that inspiration at the back of my mind to just keep telling me I was ready, I had to do this. I wish I would have spent more time in complete surrender to that voice instead of telling myself again and again that I wasn't ready. Or being sad, thinking about all the parties I was going to miss over the summer. Um, I definitely should have let go of my insecurities and uh, attachments a lot sooner and easier with, with more grace. Although maybe that was part of the whole process. And I'm now I'm on the other side seeing what mundane things serve my will and which ones don't. And it was well worth my time. Most holy and divine Lord of the Aeon, Rahul Kuit, 
crowned and conquering child, hear thou this humble but bold invocation of thy presence. O Lord of the Sun, O God of war and vengeance, I ask to enter thy presence and ask that thou wilt aid and guard me in this work of thine art. Strike, strike the master chord, draw, draw the flaming sword, crown child and conquering lord, Horus, avenger. O thou of the head of the hawk, thee, thee I invoke. Thou only begotten child of Osiris, thy father, and Isis, thy mother. He that was slain, she that bore thee in her womb, flying from the terror of the water. Thee, thee I invoke. O thou whose apron is of flashing white, whiter than the forehead of the morning. Thee, thee I invoke. O thou who hast formulated thy father and made fertile thy mother. Thee, thee I invoke. O thou whose garment is of the golden glory with the azure bars of sky, thee, thee I invoke. Thou who didst avenge the horror of death, thou the slayer of Typhon, thou who didst lift thine arms and the dragons of death were as dust, thou who didst raise thine head and the crocodile of the Nile was abased before thee, thee, thee I invoke. O thou whose nemes hideth the universe with night, the impermeable blue, thee, thee I invoke. Thou who travellest in the boat of Ra, abiding at the helm of the aftered boat and of the sectet boat, thee, thee I invoke. Thou who bearest the wand of double power, thee, thee I invoke. Thou about whose presence is shed the darkness of blue light, the unfathomable glory of the outmost ether, the untravelled, the unthinkable immensity of space. Thou who concentrest all the thirty ethers in one darkling sphere of fire, thee, thee I invoke. O thou who bearest the rose and cross of life and light, thee, thee I invoke. The voice of the five, the voice of the six, eleven are the voices, abracadabra. Strike, strike the master chord, draw, draw the flaming sword, crown child and conquering lord, Horus, avenger. By thy name of Ra, I invoke thee, hawk of the sun, the glorious one. By thy name, Harmakis, youth of the brilliant morning, I invoke thee. By thy name, Mao, I invoke thee, lion of the midday sun. By thy name, Tum, hawk of the even, crimson splendor of the sunset, I invoke thee. By thy name, O Hefra, I invoke thee, O beetle of the hidden mysteries of midnight. By thy Herupakra, Lord of Silence, beautiful child that standeth on the dragons of the deep, I invoke thee. By thy name, Apollo, I invoke thee. O man of strength and splendor, O poet, O father, by thy name of Phoebus, that drivest thy chariot through the heavens of Zeus, I invoke thee. By thy name of Odin, I invoke thee. O warrior of the north, O renown of the sagas, by thy name Jeheshua. O child of the flaming star, I invoke thee. By thine own, thy secret name Hori, thee I invoke. The names are five, the names are six. Eleven are the names, Abrahadabra. Behold, I stand in the midst. Mine is the symbol of Osiris. To thee are mine eyes ever turned. Unto the splendor of Geburah, the magnificence of Chesed, the mystery of Darth. Thither I lift up mine eyes. This have I sought, and I have sought the unity. Hear thou me, 
Mine is the head of the man, and my insight is keen as the hawk's. By my head I invoke thee. I am the only begotten child of my father and mother. By my body I invoke thee. About me shine the diamonds of radiance, white and pure. By their brightness I invoke thee. Mine is the red triangle reversed, the sign given of none, save it be of thee, O Lord. By the laman I invoke thee. Mine is the garment of white sewn with gold, the flashing abide that I wear. By my robe I invoke thee. Mine is the sign of Apophis and Typhon. By the sign I invoke thee. Mine is the turban of white and gold, and mine the blue vigour of the intimate air. By my crown I invoke thee. My fingers travel on the beads of pearl, so run I after thee in thy car of glory. By my fingers I invoke thee. I bear the wand of double power in the voice of the master. Abrahadabra, by the word I invoke thee. Mine are the dark blue waves of music in the song that I made of old to invoke thee. Strike, strike the master chord. Draw, draw the flaming sword. Crown child and conquering lord. Horus, avenger, by the song I invoke thee. In my hand is thy sword of revenge. Let it strike at thy bidding. By the sword I invoke thee. The voice of the five. The voice of the six. Eleven are the voices. Abrahadabra. Mine is the head of the hawk. Abrahadabra. I am the only begotten child of Osiris my father and Isis my mother. He that was slain. She that bore me in her womb flying from the terror of the water. Abrahadabra. My apron is a flashing white. Whiter than the forehead of the morning. Abrahadabra. I have formulated my father and made fertile my mother. Abrahadabra. Mine is the garment of the golden glory with the azure bars of sky. Abrahadabra. I did avenge the horror of death. I am the slayer of Typhon. I did lift mine arms and the dragons of death were as dust. I did raise mine head and the crocodile of Nile was abased before me. Abrahadabra. My nemesis hides the universe with night. The impermeable blue. Abrahadabra. I travel in the boat of Ra, abiding at the helm of the aftet boat, and of the sectet boat, Abrahadabra, about my presence is shed the darkness, blue light, the unfathomable glory of the utmost ether, the untraveled, the unthinkable immensity of space. I can centre all the thirty ethers in one darkling sphere of fire, Abrahadabra. Therefore I say unto thee, Come thou forth and dwell in me, so that every spirit, whether of the firmament or of the ether, or of the earth or under the earth, on dry land or in water, of whirling air or of rushing fire, and every spell and scourge of God the vast one may be, thou, Abrahadabra, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. 
Dear sisters and brothers, I'm Harper Feist, Secretary of Leaping Laughter Lodge, and I'm deeply honored to be the chair of the 2016 OTO Women's Symposium, Ladies of Force and Fire, to be held in the Valley of Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 5th through 7th, 2016, Era Vulgaris. Details of the conference can be found at a link on the Stooping Starlight page. There is also a Facebook page devoted to the meeting. Please visit these locations to learn more and to register. We have chosen the image of the Statue of Liberty to represent the conference. Originally named in France, La Liberté éclairante le monde, it is literally liberty enlightening the world. The statue features a robed female figure representing Libertas, the Roman goddess bearing a torch and a tablet upon which is inscribed the date of the American Declaration of Independence. A broken chain lies at her feet, an icon of freedom, and inscribed on a plaque in the museum at its base are the familiar words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, from a poem written by Emma Lazarus as part of the original fundraising efforts to have the work erected. This poem has the opening words, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name the mother of exiles. It is a woman who is strong enough to bear that imprisoned lightning, shining light, life, love, and liberty into the darkness. And she is maternal, the mother of exiles. She is Bina, Nuit, Babylon, in whose womb all are begotten, and wherein we shall rest. She embodies the strength, the beauty, the hope, and the sorrow that we who speak the Lema must reflect. In the name of the powerful and effective women that abound in the OTO, we offer this conference with the face of liberty looking over all. Love is the law, love under will. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of law. Thanks for tuning in. This is another segment of Care Sora. My name is Crystal Lal. This is Sora Madini. And uh, we've been given a few topics to think about and talk about today, but we'll see where it goes. Um, one of the things that was asked for us to possibly talk about was for us to describe what kind of magic do we do or how do we do our magic? And we thought about this for a while and we've actually had several conversations about this and our consensus is we don't want to talk about what magic we do or how we do our magic. So I guess we're <laughs> going to talk about why we don't want to talk about what magic we do. Well, I thought it was a bit, a bit uh, funny considering the topic, you know, uh, my secret center. Um, you know, to what extent we share the work that we do with others and to what extent we don't, and um, sort of where to draw that line. I think that um, the sort of trend in, as far as what I've seen in, you know, blogs people are posting and books that have come out over the past 
maybe five years, even five to ten years-ish, there's been a lot of people speaking more openly about their personal work who um, maybe hadn't before, and there's pluses and minuses to that. Um, but it's definitely got me thinking about, okay, well, um, you know, to what extent should I be, or do I, to what extent do I want to be sharing the work that I'm doing, and to what extent is it better for me to keep it to myself? Um, and I think that, that both points of view are pretty interesting, both the pro and the con, for and against. See, with me, I, I, I absolutely see both sides of this. I'm very, very excited, and I would even say eager, to hear about the different kinds of magical retirements people have done, um, huge uh, undertakings that they have done, and how they have fared, what the most difficult part it was that they had to overcome, and I think in part it's, I find it interesting and I want to hear about these things because I'm looking for um, motivation and encouragement for me to do these kinds of things when I can gather the time and resources to do so. I, I, I suppose the very human part of me is also looking for other magicians to say how difficult it was for them to do certain things <laughs> and that it was an, an an undertaking to do it. So I'm really eager to hear those things. At the same token, if I was to plan my own magical retirement, I think, at least on this side of it, I would be very hesitant to publicize it, to publish it, to talk about it. So I I don't really know how I can have both competing ideas and feelings at the same time, but that's really where I'm at with it. Wow, I, I hadn't heard you say that before. Really? Yeah, I hadn't heard you say that. Because I suppose, you know, at least with me anyway, I'm, I am certainly my own greatest critic, and I'm the most difficult on myself. No one is as difficult on me as I am. And when I find myself in a particular rut about not being able to accomplish the number of rituals I want to do or kinds of magic that I want to do in a timely fashion, I seem to always forget how often Crowley failed. (laughs) And he very specifically published all of his journals and writings so that we could see both sides of it, that we could see when he was able to accomplish something magnificent that it would encourage others to, to do the work, mm-hmm. but that it would also remind everybody that we are humans and have difficult times making things happen the way we want to sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we are our greatest barriers, I think. But he didn't publish everything, even though he writes a lot about the different situations in which he's failed. There are places where he alludes to things that he's not able to really discuss openly, um, and so I think it's, that's kind of interesting, too, because he really did leverage publishing as sort of his main way of disseminating his work, um, you know, fairly early on in his life with Equinox and, and all of that. So now we live in a world where uh, publishing, uh, sharing your writing, sharing your journals, sharing your experiences, it's almost too easy to where there's so much going on out there, you have no real way to filter it out. And so... There's, you know, certain people who, you know, you might see their blog coming up repeatedly on different Google searches and other people where, you know, you suddenly discover their work and they were sort of tucked away in this obscure little um, nook somewhere and then you finally discover their work and it's like, oh, wow, where was this all my life? Um, 
so I think it's it's interesting um, that publishing piece of it and what's public and what's private and um, just the particular times that we're living in it's kind of mixing up you know that that line in some ways that's definitely much needed because the division between public and private has been pretty a pretty hard line in a lot of spheres of life um, maybe it doesn't need to be maybe it does but for you you were talking about the failure piece of it and how do you kind of cope with how do you cope with uh, messing something up or not doing as much as you wanted or you know if I can resonate with that piece too that's part of the work. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what's important. That if we do not face it and acknowledge the things that are difficult for us, places where we have failed, then we don't allow ourselves to learn from it and to move on or to make changes. If you construct a very, very elaborate ritual and you have memorized every possible column of 777 and utilize every possible magical tool and implement at your disposal and didn't set your alarm to wake up at the right time, then you're missing something vital. You're, you're forgetting something as simple as time management. If you can do all the very detailed things but forget something as simple like, did you set your alarm? <laughs> then it doesn't matter how elaborate your ritual was, it's still not going to work because you can't do something simple. And that kind of simple lesson would really be exponential, I feel like, in all parts of your life. If you spend all of your time doing really great detailed work but always miss the simplest things, I find that that person will probably have a lot of failures in their life. So if they don't figure out where they fail, then they can't ever learn. That's true. I mean, that sort of goes back to working on what your weakest suits are, you know, working instead of working on like, okay, well, I'm already, you know, really great at this other thing. So I'm just going to get even better at this other thing rather than it's like, I can't wake up on time to save my life. Well, maybe that's what you should focus on, you know, like maybe that's where you should be directing your efforts. Um, it's like Young uh, and, and when he's writing about individuation writes about that individuation is um, not necessarily about uh, becoming more unbalanced, right? You don't want to get even better at something you're already pretty good at. You want to work on the things that are your weakest suits. You want to work on your weak spots rather than things you're already pretty good at. So I think that sometimes it's easy to overlook that and the things that we naturally gravitate towards in terms of practices or, um, you know, in terms of the type of work that we end up doing, uh, you end up doing things that are most natural to you instead of maybe stretching yourself by doing something that doesn't come as naturally to you. There's pros and cons to that. Yes, but then would you want to tell everybody about that? Exactly. Would you would you want to tell everyone about this? So let's let's say you have no knowledge or experience in the tarot deck at all. Would you want to publish a an article, a blog post, podcast, whatever about? How you taught yourself the tarot because you didn't know Jack. <laughs> maybe. Like, maybe that could be valuable for somebody else who doesn't know Jack about tarot. And they're like, oh, here's somebody else who doesn't have a clue. And they managed to successfully learn it in 78 days. Like, congratulations. <laughs> you know, like, that's what, that's, you know, less than three months you managed to learn tarot. So there's all kinds of reasons why you could do that, you know? Yes, but, but would you want to do that? It could be you. beneficial. Yeah. 
I already am familiar with the tarot. I know that. I know. I'm like an example of the, of the tarot. But it, would you want to post, would you want to public, publicly let other magicians know that you had a great gap in information and how you learned it? Whatever that gap is. That could potentially be something that's beneficial for other people to see and to learn from. Absolutely. And I think that can really be helpful to acknowledge your weaknesses publicly. It can be pretty beneficial if you feel like that, you know, you're doing, you're pretty cool, you're pretty awesome, everybody loves you, and then, like, you know, make some posts about how, like, there's this one area in your life in which you're really not measuring up and you kind of are struggling with that. Uh, I think that could be pretty beneficial, too. You said something there that caught me. There's some part of your life that you're not measuring up. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's really where all the magic lies, mm-hmm. that all the pra- I'll say that's where all the practical magic lies for me. You have to be able to acknowledge and identify areas in your own life that are weak, that are you are not strong in, that you mm-hmm. do not have knowledge, or that you need a great deal of help and skill with. And I think for me, that's where I focus a lot on, and why I would probably not want to publish things about me because it, then it becomes very personal. Then I'm telling the world these are my greatest weaknesses. And this is what I'm doing to remedy that. I think a very blanket example most magicians talk about is, say you want to look for a job. How would you go about looking for a job? Well, you can construct a ritual, but unless you don't control what's going on in the material world, update your resume, Mm -hmm. make sure you actually have the skills for the job that you're applying for, (laughs) (laughs) you know, obtain those skills. That's that's a pretty generic example Mm -hmm. most people hear. You don't hear... I have considerable problem keeping my anger in check. <laughs> Let's talk about how to do that. And I think that's that's why you don't see those kinds of things because a lot of practical magic has to do with that that weakest part, mm-hmm. the vulnerable part of you. Right. But there's been a sea change around that. I mean, you, you see these TED talks about vulnerability and like I don't know about your particular field, but in counseling it's you know, everybody loves to share those TED Talks or talk about those TED Talks. And there's uh, a lot of advantages to being in a social environment where you are safe enough to be able to admit you have things that you don't do well, things that you struggle with, stumbling blocks, and to be in a community where people care enough about you that it's safe to be open about those kinds of things. I found that to be tremendously beneficial for me in just becoming a better human being. Hmm. And I think that a magical lodge or a you know local body or any sort of magical group at its best can be that. We're all trying to improve ourselves together. And you know, if I can't be open with you about what I'm struggling with, what I'm working on, you know, what I can't quite, what I can't quite make the cut with. Um, you know, who can I talk to about that stuff? Hmm. I mean, there's probably some other close friends or something like that, but that's what the great work is about in a lot of ways, I think. So if we're going to have community, we need to be able to be real. I'm pretty passionate about that. That's interesting because um, with the, the local body I'm with, I feel like there's almost two sides of it. We get to know each other on a personal basis one-on-one outside of events Mm -hmm. but when we're at events it's more guarded 
we don't talk about those personal things mm -hmm. at, at at events, especially at public, public events. events. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that would seem to be in opposition of the sense of having community. Part of the part of the reason of having this local body is to develop a sense of family and community mm -hmm. that you're not alone in having these types of philosophies and beliefs and practices. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if there's a barrier for most people to be vulnerable in even in these mm -hmm. very specific small quote magic circles mm -hmm. where you find well vulnerability is on a spectrum. Um, in any particular situation that I find myself in, um, I'm weighing, and not necessarily consciously, but I'm unconsciously sort of weighing the degree to which um, I would like to be vulnerable around these people or this person or whoever I happen to be with. Um, and that can really depend on how I'm feeling, um, what other things are going on in my life, who I'm around, how I feel about those people whom I'm around, and my sense of how the other people that I'm around are doing at that particular time, too. I don't necessarily want to um, come in crying after I've had a really difficult day when somebody else has had an even more difficult day than me, and I know so-and-so is struggling with this or such-and-such -such is struggling with that, and this other person has this going on. Um, so there's a lot of different variables that are at play. I don't think vulnerability is necessarily a black-and-white thing. Either you are or are not vulnerable around another person, um, it depends on a lot of other factors. It's pretty complicated, I think. That's one of my weaknesses. I see things in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that publicly. You said it. You said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can admit to that part. And, well, and, and, and anyone who knows me would also agree. My weakness is looking at how complicated things are and being like, wow, it's so complicated. And then just sort of like pondering over that and thinking about it and um, not do, actually doing anything or accomplishing anything or um, letting myself off the hook because it's so complicated I couldn't possibly make a decision about all this. There's too many things to consider, so I'll just sort of wait. And then the moment of action has passed, and then I've screwed up before even realizing that I had a decision to make. Um, <laughs> so in that way, we offset each other pretty well. Yes. Yes, we yeah. do. But, you know, um, magical communities and, you know, like uh, fraternal groups or any group that's that's to the level of intimacy of being like a family, um, it's dangerous in a lot of ways. I've been in a magical group that failed, and it was tremendously painful for me and for other people that were involved with it. Um, I've seen other people be in situations where either they were, you know, sort of forced out or scapegoated in magical groups or in other types of groups, um, when these things go wrong, it's tremendously difficult and painful and even traumatic for folks. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us who are going to be involved in any type of intentional community like this to be really cautious and be very intentional in how we're relating to other people. Because if you think about it, you know, back... Um, way back in the tribal days, you know, when humans were running around stabbing animals and eating things they could find off the ground or in trees, um, if you got cast out from the tribe, you were done for, completely done for. And there's some level at which I think socially we remember that. Mm. So I think we really have to be careful with this stuff. It's, it's powerful. Group dynamics are very powerful, you know, and, and you care about the people that you're around. At least I would hope that, that you do. Otherwise, why are you hanging around them? Mm. No, I agree. For me, if I'm going to call someone a friend and have respect for that person as a magician, then I expect those people to call me out on my BS. 
I have at least three people that I know in my personal life uh, who I, I count as good friends and who are also magicians that have very clearly <laughs> called me out on my BS before and made sure that for whatever reason I was seeing it. I was ignoring this giant BS thing and they pointed it out to me. Not everybody likes that. <laughs> Not everybody can handle that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to deal with a, a community of magicians or like-minded people, it can still be difficult to play that role. If you're going to participate in someone's life, even if on some kind of energetic level, if you consider them a magician and their viewpoint as valid, just because you're able to point out someone's BS does not mean that that person is able to address that BS or wants to address that BS. That's true. Maybe they're in a different place and they're dealing with a different thing at that time well, and can't handle that. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, there's been times where, Crystal, you said some things that I thought were BS, and I, <laughs> I chose at that moment not to call you out on it. And I know you're the type of person who likes to be called out on those things, but... Based. I can't believe I'm saying that publicly. Now everyone's going to call me on my BS constantly. You can get text messages. Hey, that was BS. Uh, I feel, well, I like to be called on my BS as well, but not when I'm in a really sort of weak place that I don't really feel like I'm able to take some sort of criticism. Like criticism, especially from somebody you really respect, kind of stings. Mm. And there's an art to delivering constructive criticism, an art that I think is really. Um, not well practiced these days. Um, <laughs> it should like, be a class. I see a class forming. <laughs> how to deliver constructive criticism. Yes. I think I think that that would be a very. I would love to take that class. I could learn a lot from it. Ooh, Kaba, Kaba class. Exactly. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things where what I value more is is the relationship. You know, the relationship that I have with you, the relationship that I have with someone else. It's like, well. They want me to call them out on their BS, but I can't necessarily do that unless the moment is right. And um, there's so many other factors going on at play that, you know, what are the pros and cons of all this? And then again, like, what is and is not BS? Like, that's a that's a pretty interesting question to think about, too, because I, I, I'm really good at BSing. I'm academic. Like, I'm really good. <laughs> I'm really good at BSing. I've gotten to the point where it's, it's become a real art. And um, there's a lot of things that I have, have seen myself do that I initially thought were BS. And then a lot of other people read what I wrote or looked at my work, and they thought it was pretty clever, pretty smart, and then I'm starting to think, okay, well, where's the line between, um, you know, sort of like the hermetic trickster sort of thing and like flat out, like flat out BS that you need to get straight on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, I can't help you with that. Although I could, I could totally see you BSing yourself, <laughs> talking yourself into circles. Like, well, well no, I don't know what's true. No, there's there's some um, there's some Nietzsche quote about uh, like self deception and like the the most brilliant people are best at self deception. They're really good at fooling themselves. Like, it's a pretty deep magical truth. It's like if you're convincing enough about what you say and you believe it enough, then it's the truth. It doesn't necessarily matter whether it is or is not true. And the truth of it might have to do more with do the people who you're telling it to actually believe you. So, so much of the truth is kind of 
the social construction um, that gets to be a bit of a hall of mirrors if you think about it too much. Um, but I'm convinced it's true. <laughs> we got a bit off the topic of my secret center or whatever else we had set ourselves to discuss. Well, I have benefited tremendously from reading other people's records. Um, the sense in which you get a certain type of inspiration from that, especially early on, just to know that people are doing this stuff. To know that people are out there performing you know, these operations, that people are um, getting in there and having results. Oh, I agree. I think it's very interesting. But there's also... I just when the question is posed to me personally, mm -hmm. I can't or don't currently see myself being someone who would be public about it. Mm -hmm. I could be um, how I personally feel there's about it. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> there's no... I don't want to talk about... I mean, I don't have a problem talking about what kind of magic I do with a select few group mm -hmm. of magical friends. But I feel like that's very different mm -hmm. than making that... Public, mm -hmm. not the least of which is the all that release of energy. If I'm going to release all of that to everyone mm -hmm. in the universe, that just seems too much to me. Mm -hmm. I can't fathom that for me. Well, then don't do it. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty careful about what I do and don't disclose, and to whom and why and under what circumstances. And I think that that is right for me. There's other people who are indiscriminately open about things in a different way. And, you know, that might be right for them, too. It's not for me to necessarily judge. Has Sor Mandini published any of her m magical works, rituals, practices before? Um, is this, is this going to be your first time? What, as far as Publicly. sharing? Yeah. Um, not necessarily. It's the first time in this particular format. Um, I've written some other things for different journals when I was doing Golden Dawn work. I think there was a ritual and there were some other things that uh, were published in sort of small format journals. Um, but it's always a question of the context and you know who your audience is whenever you're publishing anything. You know, who is your audience? Um, it's much easier in sort of an intimate one-on-one -on -one kind of situation or even a small group of friends, you know, sitting around having a glass of wine on a lovely evening discussing magic. Um, it's a bit different when it's something that's more public mm. because you know, there's, there's sort of the hesitation we have in terms of sharing things publicly. I think that that's imp it's important to respect that and to respect um, how much of an impact other people's comments on your work can have because once you put something out there, people can say all kinds of things about it. They can um, say positive things. They can say negative things. They can say um, things that completely misconstrued what you were trying to say. And um, all of us are socially suggestible beings to some extent. And those comments make an impact on us. So I think that it's important to kind of respect the trepidation that we feel in terms of sharing particular things. There are certain things that I believe should be kept secret. Coming around to it again. I would personally like to think all of the magicians who have published their, their magical operations and the work that they do so that I have reading and, and listening to do about things I can't wait to do sometime in my future. I will not be one of them. 
So I want everyone else to publish their things, (laughs) but I don't want to publish mine. And perhaps for people like me who know that they don't want to publish our personal magic or how we do our magic, maybe we could be a little more kind to the people who are publishing their work before we criticize. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I do have a lot of gratitude for the folks who have made that choice to publish their work. I think about, you know, the sentences in books or sentences in letters that I've read over and over and over again because they're just so rich for me. Um, And a lot of those have not necessarily been, you know, some paper that Crowley wrote. It's been letters. It's been um, emails. It's been those items of kind of personal correspondences. Um, There's chunks of Crowley's journals that I've read over and over again that just sort of strike me like there's one comment in one of his journals where I think we were talking about this in the car um, earlier Crystal where he had written in one of his journals to the secret chiefs he's like basically I can't deal with this anymore I'm tired of being broke I can't like you've given me this job to do I can't do it unless the money finally comes in I'm (laughs) wasting so much time and energy like trying to make ends meet like basically he says Something like if you don't if you don't make this a little bit easier for me I'm gonna quit. Like it's basically giving an ultimatum to the secret chiefs and it's like wow here's like this is like I think it's later in his career that he's writing all this and I was looking at it and just sort of like wow I can I can really relate to that like <laughs> you give me a job but you don't give me the tools to do it like what's going on here something's not matching up. I think many people can relate to that. <laughs> How do you expect me to accomplish all of these things without any money to do the things? I need the money. I didn't ask necessarily to be a billionaire, but, well, you know, enough to make things work. When he wrote that, he was in a position where, you know, it was always just sort of like by the skin of his teeth he was getting by, you know. At least that's how I remember it, you know. Um, maybe it wasn't actually like that, but this is just sort of my, my reconstruction of what Crowley wrote. But it was the anxiety that he couldn't deal with, like the anxiety of like not being sure if, you know, the, the royalty check would come in on time or, you know, all these different things. And it was finally getting to him to this point where he's writing this journal. It's like, wow, <laughs> it's such a relatable feeling. Magicians and money problems. Things have not changed much. <laughs> that is true. It's <laughs> a perennial issue. Yeah. Well, thank you for for talking to me. I think, uh, not really surprisingly, every time you and I have a conversation, I walk away wishing I had a pen and paper because there's some things that you say that really make me think. You always challenge my perceptions in some areas in a positive way. And I think today the most prominent for me would be being willing to be more vulnerable in my, my magical community as opposed to being guarded since... That is supposed to be one of the, the groups that I have chosen to be with and to show my true self, since it's very hard for me to do at work and for most people to mm-hmm. do at work. So I think I'm going to spend some time thinking about that. Thanks. Yeah, the thing about uh, vulnerability is it, it can be kind of a, it's kind of a selfish thing, really, because if you don't, selfish. yes, if you don't make yourself vulnerable, you're not necessarily going to change or get any support or... Um, get anything from your environment that really touches you that's Mm. I mean so when I say you know about being vulnerable it's not um, it's it's kind of a selfish thing because 
if you don't really bring yourself as fully and intimately to the table as that, you're you're not going to get the transformation that you want in a social environment. That's what I've learned from doing a lot of group work and from being in magical groups and just living life. Yeah, in some ways it's a bit selfish. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll be vulnerable and admit that I'm okay, like wanting to get mine. You know? okay Somebody support bit, me now. It's okay to be a bit selfish. Yeah, but you know, if you don't, if you don't get um, that real sense of connection and support and community and love, that's what being alive is about. So I'm pretty passionate about that. Amen. There we go. Omgen. <laughs> and I can mispronounce that if I want to. <laughs> okay, this has been great, Crystal. Thank you. Love is the law, love under will. As a treat for our listeners, we have decided to make a special episode for the three days. Released on the 8th of April, it features Heather Schubert's interview with Sora Morale, as well as an interview with Malena Cornelius about her work. We are very excited to share this material with you and want to extend a huge thanks to all who made it possible. As part of our Patreon, we'd also like to thank the following. Mika Kaplan, Harper Feist, Lena Kotler-Wallace, Shelley Morn, Dorothy and Shanda McCauley. Thanks to you, we are able to grow our podcast further and promote the Women's Voice in Thelema one podcast at a time. Would you like a shout out as well? Well, then go to our Patreon site and pledge now. And details are on our website, stoopingstarlight.com. our podcast thank you for listening love is the law love under will